The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This is Andrea, for those of you who I've not met before. And this week I'm we're weaving two threads together, one from this week of the daily life practice that we're, um, several of us here are engaged in all week. And the other is a theme I've been talking about here on Thursday nights for a few weeks, this theme of the five spiritual faculties that support our meditation practice, our mindfulness practice. And it's not too hard to weave these two together. So, um, The five uh, qualities, the five faculties that we're exploring um, that support our meditation practice, they are, uh, it's, it's one of the Buddhist lists. They are faith or confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And we can think of these as skills that support the, um, the cultivation of, or, or tools, qualities of mind that support the skill of our meditation practice. We can think of meditation as being a skill that can be learned and cultivated and grown. And these are things that support that happening for us. As I mentioned, the first week I talked about these faculties They're basically skills um, or qualities of mind that would be at use in any, cultivating any skill. With wisdom, we we have to first of all know what we're doing with any cultivating any skill. If we're learning to... Um, play basketball, we need to learn the rules of the game. We need to know how to play the game. And then we need to have some confidence in our ability to do, th- to do that, some confidence that we can play the game. And then apply some energy to learning the rules and to learning the movements and to playing. And then awareness of what's happening around us, the mindfulness to engage in the activity. And some degree of focus to um, watch what's going on. And as we do all of those things, our skill of the um, activity gets stronger, and the um, what we understand about the game or what we understand about what we're cultivating becomes more ingrained in our very activity. And so very similarly with with meditation. First of all, we need to have some sense of what we're trying to do. You know, what is the... Um, the point of our meditation practice. We need to know what we're trying to do and why. The basic uh, framing that the Buddha offered around wisdom is we need to understand, I mean, basically he wanted to, he wanted to find happiness. He wanted to find true happiness. Happiness that is not reliant or not dependent on the conditions of the world. And in... Um, Exploring that, he found that the way that we relate to the world was a key struggle, a key difficulty. And so understanding that relationship of how we relate to the world, that's a key area of wisdom in what the Buddha had to offer. So essentially, probably the simplest framing of the wisdom that the Buddha offers is stated in the Four Noble Truths that we, um, we need to understand 
what suffering is. We need to understand how our minds get caught in struggle. And we need to let go of the reasons why we're caught in that struggle, realize the ending of that, and cultivate the qualities of heart and mind that lead us to that ending. So the wisdom is framed around suffering. The wisdom that the Buddha offers is framed around this quality of dukkha, the struggle, resistance, reactivity in our minds. But the point of that wisdom is that that understanding allows the mind to let go of that struggle. So it leads us to a kind of happiness, a peace, an ease that isn't dependent on the conditions in the world. And so this is the uh, kind of the basic statement of the wisdom of the Buddha and a key piece in there in terms of how that suffering is created, a key bit of understanding that the Buddha put out is that it's that relationship with the world Typically, we have a relationship that's either we want to keep something that we like, so there's a greed involved, we want to hold on to something, we want to get rid of something we don't like, an aversion, or we're perhaps confused about what's happening. So there's a a confusion or a delusion. These three qualities of mind are at the core of our unhelpful relationships with the world. And it's the, it's the whole framing of how the Buddha suggested we go about becoming happier. He said, let go of actions that are based in greed, aversion, and delusion, and cultivate actions that are based in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, or to put that more positively, non-greed, generosity, non-aversion, love, non-delusion, wisdom. So the the actions, beginning to cultivate those qualities of generosity, love, and wisdom, and let go of the greed, aversion, and delusion. That's a very, you know, kind of succinct definition of what we're trying to do here and why. We're, We're trying to cultivate an understanding of what greed, aversion, and delusion are, and that very understanding actually begins to transform them begins to move them in the direction of generosity, love, and wisdom. So there's that basic understanding of what we're trying to do. The the faith or the confidence is a sense in a confidence that that wisdom is useful and that it actually might be helpful in our lives. So there's a confidence in what the, the teachings are themselves. And then there's um, the confidence in ourselves to engage. The confidence that we can recognize these patterns in our mind. We can recognize greed, aversion, and delusion in our mind. And paradoxically, at least at first it may seem, we, we recognize those patterns and we just allow them. We don't react to them. So... Noticing greed in our mind, we don't have aversion to it. Noticing aversion in our mind, we don't want to get rid of it. So that it's the, uh, the recognition of those in a non-judgmental state of mind. 
So the confidence that we can do that, that's this quality of faith. So um, also a willingness to engage, a willingness to perhaps run the experiments of looking at our minds. the, The Buddha's teachings, the wisdom that the Buddha offered, was not just wisdom to be taken in with our intellect. He said that it has to be engaged with. It has to be brought into practice through how we look at our experience. And one way to frame that is that when there's something arising in our experience, to know it, to allow it, to not have um, uh, judgments or resistances to what's happening in our experience, but to recognize it. We begin through this practice to recognize what's happening in our hearts and minds as states of mind, states of body arising. So anger seen in this practice becomes something that is simply known as anger is happening as opposed to being motivated, directed, guided by the anger. So that um, practice begins by cultivating mindfulness, cultivating this quality of mind that can meet our experience without judgment. So that confidence to say we we have the capacity to engage in this, that we have the, the tools of mind that we can do this, and the willingness to do it. Both of those come together for us in this quality of faith. And then the other three, energy, mindfulness, and concentration. The last few weeks I talked about uh, um, wisdom and faith a little bit more in depth. And tonight I'd like to talk more about energy, mindfulness, and concentration, those three qualities. To me, these three qualities are the ones that really They're the uh, qualities that get us going in our meditation. um, They're how we engage, how we cultivate our meditation practice, our mindfulness in our daily life. Energy, we need to apply energy to turn our attention to what's happening in our experience. We need to be mindful of what's happening in our experience. And the, uh, those two, these, these three qualities are actually interrelated. They kind of form a package of how the practice works for us. Um, when energy and mindfulness are connected, they create a state of concentration, a state of the mind settling down, being more easeful, being more um, stable, unified, collected. So energy, this first quality that really supports the actual engagement with practice. It's um, strength. It's got a quality. The word, the Pali word, can also be understood as courage. And that's an interesting recognition because this meeting of our experience, turning towards our experience, especially when we're meeting challenging states of mind, especially when we're looking at our suffering. And this is 
a lot of what we explore, I mean, some, sometimes what we do in our meditation practice is cultivate stillness and quiet. In mindfulness practice, we're more looking at how our minds are operating, and a lot of what we get to see there is, as one teacher, Choyam Trungpa, said, it's one insult after another, getting, you know, looking at our minds and seeing what they do. It's, it's kind of a mess in there at times. And so um, we have to have some courage to be able to face that. So the energy gives us that strength, that courage to face our own minds. Energy itself, when we just think of the word energy, it's a pretty neutral quality. You know, it's a neutral quality of mind. The same, you know, it, 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 uh, energy motivates anger, aversion, greed, frustration, irritation. You know, there's an energy that's happening in our hearts and minds as, as those um, qualities come up. I, I, I actually know... Um, sometimes when I'm angry, you know, a, a strong energy arises. It can be easy to do things when I'm angry. There's a, there's a kind of a, an energy that comes with that. Um, so energy is kind of neutral. It can, it's going to be flavored by what else is in the mind. So this, this quality of energy, the same quality of energy can motivate states of greed, states of aversion, states of delusion. It will also motivate states of generosity, of friendliness, of kindness, of compassion, of concentration, of wisdom. So it's, it's kind of got this neutral quality. Now the um, wisdom that the spiritual faculties are embedded in, the kind of the whole um, container of these spiritual faculties, the, 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 the ground of it is this the, the teaching of wisdom, the understanding of what we're trying to do. And so the energy that we cultivate, the energy that becomes the support for our deepening our understanding, our support for our spiritual life, the energy that is a support for that is grounded in that wisdom. And so this energy is energy that is connected to understanding how we get caught. It's energy that's connected to cultivating those beautiful qualities of mind, of love, of compassion, of generosity. It's energy that's directed towards letting go of greed, aversion, delusion. So embedded right into the definition of the energy that is useful for us in cultivating this skill of meditation is the wisdom. So the Buddha encouraged us to live in a way that will lead us towards happiness. And in a way, the, the, what he suggests is that we can model happiness. You know, if we act peacefully, we will cultivate peace. If we act generously, it will cultivate generosity. So he suggests, you know, cultivating these beautiful, these actions as a way to cultivate these beautiful states of mind.
So the, there's a bunch of different factors that support this energy, this quality of energy, this skillful energy, this energy that supports our skill of meditation. The first one is wisdom, actually understanding what it is we're trying to do. You know, when we understand what is helpful for us, what states of mind are helpful for us, what states of mind are not helpful for us, we can begin to direct our energy appropriately. So it focuses the energy towards our purpose to have this understanding, to have at first an intellectual understanding, to hear. You know, if you'd like to be peaceful, act peacefully. And to also understand the, uh, um, the role of the non-judgmental mindful attention in cultivating a peaceful heart and a peaceful mind. That as we allow difficulty to be, as we allow, for instance, anger to arise, the, the kind of middle path that the Buddha suggested was neither repress nor act out. So it's a place of allowing, but not acting on. And what that does is it allows that state to be, to follow its natural course, which is to go away. <laughs> if it is not fed, further fed. Now this takes time. I was actually seeing something in my own mind earlier today where I saw that there was um, a kind of below the level. I I can usually, when something challenging is arising, just be with it. And it, it spins out very often. Within a couple of minutes, it really... Um, loosens and dissipates. But today what I saw is that the mind was caught by something and there was a kind of a feedback loop that was going below the level of my conscious awareness. I could feel, I could feel the loosening happen and then I would feel it spin up again. But I hadn't seen what had made it spin up again. So again, just to be with that. When, when that kind of thing happens, when we are... caught in a cycle like that, part of what we learn, part of what we begin to understand there, really understand, is the truth of dukkha, the truth that our minds create the suffering. And the learning that, part of the learning that happens there is that, that as the mind sees that, sees the difficulty and unpleasantness of that state, it really gets that it's a challenging, non-helpful state here and now. You know, that, that, that in this case, it was a kind of a defensive reaction in my mind. I was, you know, just m- marshalling arguments. And, um, you know, I could see, I mean, if, if I wasn't clearly aware, I might have thought it was really important to marshal those arguments in order to defend myself or protect myself. But I could clearly see it wasn't helpful. And I could see that in the moment of marshalling those arguments, there was suffering. If I hadn't been 
clearly mindful, I might have thought that those, that marshalling of arguments was actually helpful to my state of well-being. But I could see clearly in the moment it was suffering that right here and now. And that supports the mind's learning what it wants to let go of. So um, wisdom is one of the main supports for energy. Heads it in a skillful direction. Confidence is another support for energy. When we have confidence in our capacity, have confidence in what we're doing, it inclines us to want to try. So that's a kind of a very natural support for energy. Another very helpful support for energy, um, an energy that is not forced, but more um, almost spontaneous, is curiosity, interest, investigation. When we get interested in something, it's so much easier to have energy to apply to it. And if you're, if I remember when I was a, a kid, I wasn't very, I mean, I, I was given, I had to take piano lessons. Now, I wasn't very interested in the piano lessons, and it was really miserable to have to practice the piano. I had to drag myself there and, you know, sit in front of the piano, and, you know, my mom made me sit there for a certain length of time. And when I was about 25, I decided I wanted to re- relearn how to play the piano. I was interested in it. It was, it was something I wanted to do, and I was curious about it, and curious about how to, to make the notes sound good. Boy, it was much easier to sit down in, in the pia- at the piano at that point. You know, It was like it just came naturally. The, the interest naturally brought the energy. And so in our meditation practice, if we can get interested in what's happening in our minds... If we can get interested in exploring our minds, it goes a long way towards providing the energy to engage with the practice. And for me, this is, I think, one of the biggest sources of energy. That when I started to watch my mind and started to see that it was possible to see into Things I had no clue were possible to see into. I mean, seeing into kind of subtle flittings of thoughts that are triggering reactivity. You know, whole patterns of, of loneliness and anger that kept, kept going over and over again begin to see how they are triggered by certain thoughts. It was quite amazing. And I got very interested in seeing the mind. So the, one of the keys here with uh, the meditation practice, you know, we, we, um, we begin to see how helpful it is to, to observe our minds. We begin to see, wow, when I really observe this anger and get, you know, get interested in looking at this state of mind, things change. You know, we begin to see that this practice is effective, that's another support for energy. Is this kind of, as confidence gets verified, that also provides support for our practice. 
But what also happens at that moment as this confidence gets verified and the energy naturally gets applied, there also sometimes adds a skew, a different spin to that energy, which is something like, if I pay attention to this aversion in just the right way, it will go away. If I pay attention to this difficult thing, it will go away. And so we're bringing a little bit of an attitude of aversion to our attention in order to make something go away. Because we've seen it happen. We've seen how helpful it was. You know, when kind of the, it's kind of beginner's luck the first few times, right? It's, it's, that, it's that, that not really knowing what you're getting into, so you're just like in there looking at things and observing things and getting familiar. Well, wow, this is what anger's like, you know? Oh, wow, it makes my throat all clenched and my head spins and... I get all hot, and this, this is what anger's like. Wow, I didn't know it was so unpleasant to be angry. You know, you start, you start and it's all kind of interesting, and, and then you see, wow, actually it goes away when I look at it. And then we start looking at it in order to make it go away. And paradoxically, that doesn't work so well. <laughs> so the, the curiosity, you know, we have to connect with this sense of observing our minds for the sake of observing our minds, not for the sake of any particular result. But fortunately for us that when we observe our minds for the sake of observing our minds, what tends to happen is the difficult states tend to diminish and the lovely states tend to increase. But we can't engage in the practice with the intention to get rid of the difficult states because that's bringing a difficult state into the very doing of the practice. So that's a challenge for us. You know, that's a, that's a a fine line that we walk. And mostly what we have to do is just recognize and laugh at ourselves. It's like, oh, there I am trying to make that anger go away by paying attention to it in that way. So we, we, whatever's going on, whatever's happening, even if it's multiple layers of resistance or multiple layers of wanting, where whatever we're waking up to, whatever's most obvious in the moment, that's where we bring our energy. So um, wisdom, confidence, interest, curiosity, all of these support our energy. The other piece I'll say about energy is that it's helpful for it to be balanced. Energy comes from making effort. That sounds a little paradoxical, perhaps. Um, We often think in order to make effort, we have to have energy. And we do have to have a certain amount of energy in order to make effort. But the uh, right, applying effort in the right way, in a balanced way, in a relaxed way, will actually generate more energy. So if we're over-applying our energy, if we're using too much energy, using energy too strongly to be mindful, it's like picking up the backpack of energy 
and mindfulness and saying, I'm going to do this and carrying it around with us, that tends to make us tired. So when we are... um, When there's too much energy, it creates a kind of a scattered, restless mind, and we also tend to get tired. We tend to get burned out. It feels burdensome when we're making too much effort. When it's on the other side, if if there's too little energy, we tend to get dull, we tend to get sleepy. The mind is not so able to stay connected with experience. There's a feeling of laziness, perhaps. The mind is just kind of drifting around. And so there's got to be some place between these two. The Buddha used an analogy of tuning a lute, a stringed instrument. And he said the, the tautness of that string has to be just right. If it's too loose, the string is not going to make beautiful music. If it's too tight, it's going to snap and the string will break and the music will won't, you won't make beautiful music with the instrument. So in a similar way, our energy needs to have just the right level of uh, touching, of application. Neither too tight nor too loose. For me, the key around energy is that the way we usually think about making energy, making effort is kind of mustering energy and applying a lot of it at once. If we, if we, if like, for instance, we sit down to meditate for 40 minutes, I've seen myself go, okay, I'm going to meditate for 40 minutes, and it's like, right, pick up that energy, right. It's like trying to make the effort to, to be present for 40 minutes right in that first 10 seconds of meditation. It doesn't work that way. Rather, we can make just enough effort to be present for a short time. And then do it again. And then do it again. And then do it again. And again. The effort in our mindfulness practice is about short moments over and over and over again. Picking up just enough effort to be present for this and this. In our sitting meditation, this might be just enough energy to stay with a half a breath, just enough energy to be with an in-breath, just enough energy to be with an out-breath. That's it. That's all the effort you need to make. You just have to remember to keep doing it. That remembering is the hard bit. The remembering itself also doesn't take strong, you know, pushing. It just takes a little reminding. One of my teachers, um, when I went to see him in Burma, the first instruction he gave me was, the only work you give your mind is to remind yourself to be aware. Just that reminding, that's that's the effort. Just to remind yourself. When you are aware, remind yourself, be aware for the next half a second. And then do it again and again. In walking, we can do this in the steps. You know, can I, be, can I be aware for the next two steps? And then can I be aware for two more steps and two more steps? And then a momentum begins to build. A momentum of that energy begins to build. And we, um, 
we find that we don't have to try to be present every, we don't have to remind ourselves to be present every two steps. It's more like we can naturally be present for 10 steps and then remind ourselves again. In daily life, it functions kind of similarly. And we've been talking about this light touch of effort all week, you know, to, to emphasize just a light touch. One question that I ask myself sometimes around effort is how little effort do I need to be present right now? There's actually often a lot less effort than I think. Now, sometimes, some, sometimes our minds are on the opposite side of the equation. They're on the lazy side. And you do need to add a little bit more of the reminding. But it's not a pushing. It's not a tightening. It's not a forcing. It's a more frequent reminding. A light touch more frequently. That's where the, that's what the um, strong effort is. That's what strong effort is in our practice. Light touches many times. So the energy in our practice, what we're doing in the practice, this direction of our energy, it incorporates the wisdom and it's already also connected to the next quality of mindfulness. As I've been talking about applying energy, what have I been talking about? Applying energy towards mindfulness. Applying energy towards being aware. So the, these two are intimately connected in our spiritual life. What we apply the energy to is being mindful. The being mindful in a certain way. Again, directing our attention towards what's happening in the present moment. Not judging ourselves earlier, or maybe it was last night or this morning, I can't remember when uh, you asked the question about the difference between the kind of mindfulness of somebody who's, you know, just kind of got street mindfulness and what, what we're doing here, you know, the, the kind of difference between somebody who's mindful um, when they're robbing a house and what we're trying to do here. The, um, the basic a kind of one way to look at that distinction is that the mindfulness of somebody who's um, trying to rob a house, they may be incredibly aware of their surroundings, of what's going on around them, but they're probably not so aware of, how, of what their state of mind is and how it is impacting them. The state of greed of wanting uh, to have somebody else's, to, of taking that, something that belongs to somebody else. They're, they're probably not aware of that. And that's a large part of the mindfulness, of what we turn our attention to. Mindfulness in our practice is not just awareness of what's happening. It's awareness of how we are relating to what's happening our reactions, our responses to what's happening, how our mind is with what's happening, and seeing that certain states of mind create an inner, an inner tension, an inner lack of well-being. And that, that the, if what we're going for, if our, the skill we're trying to cultivate is true happiness, those states are not serving us. So the 
the mindfulness is a turning towards our own inner landscape rather than being mindful so much. I mean, we, we do. We do cultivate the mindful of what's happening around us. That's part and par- parcel of what we cultivate. But it's not all. We also cultivate an awareness of our inner life. So this kind of mindfulness, this awareness of what's happening in our inner life, and this uh, awareness of kind of the flow of experience, begins to um, help us directly understand the wisdom that this whole project is structured around. It be, we begin to directly understand that the way we typically try to find happiness, the way we typically go about that, actually includes suffering right in the middle of it. That the way we typically go about trying to be happiness, to get what we want, to get rid of what we don't want, that in the very wanting to have, wanting to get rid of, there's already suffering. So the way that we typically go about trying to get happiness includes suffering right in the very execution of it. We, we begin to see this directly in our own experience. We, we begin to have revealed to us the, um, the things that we want, the things that we want to get rid of. You know, they're impermanent. They're unreliable. We're trying to construct a world that will create happiness out of impermanent, unreliable stuff. It's destined to be impermanent and unreliable, the happiness that we create out of this impermanent, unreliable stuff. So the Buddha had a uh, uh, an alternative of looking at the way we go about it and discovered for himself that the letting go of that wanting, the letting go of that way of typically engaging, right there the happiness was, in the letting go of that wanting, right there, right there the happiness can be found. So as our mindfulness gets stronger, a stronger mindfulness doesn't mean that we are more mindful in a moment. It means that we have more moments of mindfulness. So strong mindfulness isn't about a moment of really strong mindfulness. It's that the strength of mindfulness comes the more moments of mindfulness that we put together. So it's the continuity of mindfulness that gives the power to mindfulness, that allows the mindfulness to be able to see deeply into the uh, patterns of our mind, the ways that we get caught. So like the, the example I was talking about, that defensive reaction that I was experiencing today, I was pretty mindful 
of what was going on, but I could also see that, knowing my own mind, that um, there were a lot of moments that I wasn't mindful of. You know, I could see kind of the tips of the waves of that defensiveness, but couldn't see into the structure of how it was being generated. I couldn't see the, 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 the place it was arising from. So it was, it was below the level of what I could be aware of. So it was kind of like the, the, there, was, you know, there, there was a fair amount of mindfulness, but I, knowing my own mind, I could see there was a lot of gaps in that mindfulness. So that mindfulness was on the weaker side. It couldn't penetrate that pattern right in the moment, then and there. As the mindfulness gets stronger, it can penetrate into the very structure of our suffering. It penetrate right into the, uh, the way it's created. And it will, when it's seen at that level it just falls apart almost automatically. When, when the uh, mindfulness gets continuous enough, and continuous mindfulness comes when energy and mindfulness come together, and continuous mindfulness, the definition of continuous mindfulness is essentially concentration, this last, uh, this third aspect. So the, the uh, power of mindfulness comes with the concentration. And that concentration is continuous mindfulness. That's the the definition of concentration. When mindfulness gets moment after moment when mindfulness is present. So there are different ways that that continuity happens. That continuity of mindfulness creates different kinds of concentration depending on how we are paying attention. So... Um, if we're paying attention to one thing, like the breath, if we're looking at one experience over and over again, a certain kind of concentration tends to develop. The mind kind of settles into that experience. If we, as we just pay attention to that one thing and let go of other things, the other things recede they begin to be not so interesting. And the mind gets really interested and really happy at looking at that one thing, and it feels really good. It gets really blissful, and the body starts to feel pretty good. And there's a kind of a settling in, a stilling of the mind. The mind begins to kind of unify with that one experience. Things get more and more still, more and more quiet. Now that kind of concentration feels really good. And it supports our practice in that it allows the mind to collect and unify and become, it, the, 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 the mindfulness becomes continuous with that one object, with that one experience. It provides, that provides a kind of a springboard from which we can then begin to look at our experience. That state of stillness of mind is not in itself conducive to uh, understanding how our minds work. Because when the mind gets into that state, it's not seeing how it works. It's just happily absorbed into this lovely state. You know, it just is sitting there feeling good. 
which is not a bad thing. I mean, it's, it, it, it's really pleasant. It gives us a break sometimes from all of that dukkha to, to be able to settle our minds in this way. But it's not conducive to understanding how our minds work. So essentially, in order to begin to understand how our minds work, we have to turn that mind that was settled on that one experience and start looking at change instead. Start looking at how things are changing. Another whole way into the concentration is, and, and it's possible to, to, to come at concentration from this perspective, and this is how we work in daily life. Because in daily life, we are not going to be able to pay attention to one thing, that breath, and ignore the boss, and ignore the cars on the road, and just be with the breath and get absorbed into the breath. We're not going to live for very long if that's how we're going through our daily life. You know, we're going to end up walking into the street and getting hit by a car because we're not noticing anything but the breath. So that, that is not the kind of mindfulness that we can cultivate in daily life. The kind of mindfulness we cultivate in daily life is called moment-to-moment Uh, the kind of concentration we cultivate in daily life is called moment-to-moment concentration. It is a stability of the awareness, so continuity of mindfulness, moment after moment of mindfulness being present, but that mindfulness taking in different things. So we're walking. We We see, we're seeing. And then a car drives by and we hear it. And then we walk and there's a smell of a flower and we know that smell. Then we notice a happiness arise in our minds. There's a kind of a flow of experience. The mindfulness can stay connected to that flow. That continuity of being connected to that flow is concentration. And that is the form of concentration that ultimately leads to wisdom, leads to understanding. Because that kind of concentration takes in change. It knows that things are changing. In fact, it knows it in spades that things are changing. That's a lot of what we begin to really attune to as mindfulness gets more continuous. We really see how things are changing we see that they're changing so rapidly that they're not very reliable as a place to hold on to, to be happy. So this kind of mindfulness begins to educate the mind in that way of finding happiness is not so helpful for us, of trying to hold on to things that are unstable, impermanent, and unreliable we begin to directly see very clearly that that uh, habit or way of searching for happiness is is not a reliable place to go. It's not going to lead to a lasting happiness. Now, it may lead to a moment of happiness, and then we go find another one, and then that one falls apart, and we try to find another one. And we think in our lives that stringing together these moments of little blips of happiness, that that's as good as it gets. 
that that would be the best life that we could have if we could have little moment of this happiness and that lollipop and that new car and, and that new relationship and that great experience and that wonderful vacation and, and that, that good job. And if it was just that moment after moment, then that would be the best it could be. But there's pretty much no way it can ever be just that because those things end. We don't have control over the impermanent nature of all of the things that we try to collect together to create that happiness. And so this uh, more reliable way towards happiness, the Buddha pointed to, of letting go rather than trying to hold on to. And paradoxically in the letting go, we, we end up in this flow of experience where it's not like it's flat, it's not like we're we're not feeling things and it's not like there's not wonderful things happening what seems to happen in that flow is that the heart goes through a range of emotions all open hearted, all connected when there's connectivity it's love when there's suffering it's compassion when somebody is is joyful and successful, our heart resonates with that joy. All of this in the terrain of balanced mind, not being spun out one way or the other. So the wisdom and understanding comes as energy Mindfulness and concentration come together and get strong. This wisdom of understanding change, understanding the truth of what the Buddha was talking about, we understand it not intellectually, but in our direct experience. We see directly that holding on to something that is just going to disappear is a recipe for unhappiness. The wisdom that comes through this, the wisdom, the direct understanding, that is what frees us. And this is something, a a kind of a new way of, of thinking about this came to me, I think it was yesterday, or a new way of framing it or phrasing it at least. If we're experiencing any kind of struggle, stress, reactivity. Basically, there's something that's not understood. There's something we don't understand in our hearts, in our minds, or perhaps something in the world we don't understand. But there's something that's not understood. And the uh, approach towards freedom from that struggle is to understand, to investigate, to be curious about, to explore with energy, with mindfulness. The concentration that comes will allow that understanding to arise. Maybe not immediately, maybe not when you'd like it to, but over time, these three qualities together 
create the conditions for that wisdom to grow. And the wisdom is what frees us. So we have two minutes. (laughs) Does anybody have a question? (laughs) Yeah, over here. (laughs) Andrea, how does intention relate to this list? Um, Well, intention is um, kind of embedded all the way through it, in a way. Um, The... uh, the the energy that's applied is taking intention and directing it in a particular way. Um, the uh, the wisdom is pointing us to skillful intentions and letting go of unskillful intentions. the The whole framing around what are skillful and unskillful. Mind states are based in the um, impulse that's associated with our actions. And that impulse is an intention. So when, an, an, when energy, at the beginning I, I said, you know, that energy is kind of neutral and it's flavored by um, the states that come with it. So intention is a kind of an energy in a way. It's an impulse towards doing something. And it's also kind of neutral, but flavored by what comes along with it. So when our intentions are um, connected with greed, aversion, delusion, that takes us towards suffering. When our intentions are connected with generosity, kindness, love, that takes us more in the direction towards happiness and freedom. And so the whole... um, um, framing of the wisdom is around looking at intention and what mind states are accompanying intention. And the um, um, cultivation of mindfulness, concentration, and energy is, cult- uh, the skillful forms of those is cultivating skillful intention. So it's not directly represented exactly in there, but it's tangentially referred to in all of it. The whole, the, whole, the whole of what we're looking at is what's happening in this moment and what are the intentions that I'm stepping forward into the next moment with. So thank you for that question. And thank you for your attention. And next week I'll continue with this exploration of the five faculties by showing how these tools apply to a very um, familiar state of mind, fear. So I'll, I'll talk about how it works to use these tools in our, in our practice. <laughs>